This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this Room Now Joint Cell Arthritis panel from ACR 2020. I'm Richard Conway from Dublin, Ireland. And I'm joined by a truly outstanding uh, global um, group of giant cell arthritis experts um, to uh, discuss some abstracts from ACR 2020. Uh, we have Sarah Mackey from Leeds in the United Kingdom, uh, Len Calabrese from Cleveland in the United States, and David Liu from Melbourne in Australia. Um, so the first abstract we're going to discuss um, is the one on Mavrolumumab in giant cell arthritis. Um, so Sarah, I might ask you to start off on this one. So um, this was a report that um, was presented today, earlier today, um, by, my, by Maria Sid. Um, so it's a phase two um, randomized placebo-controlled trial um, of mavrilumab versus placebo, um, in addition to a prednisolone 26-week taper. So pa eligible patients were, had active giant cell arteritis, um, and they were either new onset or they were relapsing refractory. Um, and 70 patients were recruited. And the primary outcome was time to first flare, um, and the key secondary outcome was sustained remission to 26 weeks. Um, and um, the headline results of the study are, is that it met its primary and its key secondary endpoint um, with a hazard ratio of 0.38 for um, time to flare, and 83% um, of the patients in the treatment are intervention arm compared um, achieved sustained remission compared to 50% um, in the placebo arm. So, um, so it, it looks exciting. Um, it's phase two study. Um, the, it's, we, you know, we don't have the full study report, so there's still a lot of things that we'd love to know about the results of the trial, but um, it's very exciting because it's, um, it, it, it's an exciting result on a new biologic, which is not so far licensed for any indication as yet, to my knowledge. Uh, Len, um, I, I wonder if you might uh, tell us a little bit about why, how mavrolumumab works and why it might be an attractive option um, in terms of GCA pathogenesis. Yeah, well, I, 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 I volunteered to do that and I was thinking here, it, it, uh, you know, GMCSF is such an interesting molecule. Uh, it's, uh, you know, in a short generation ago, it was thought to be a, you know, hemopoietic growth factor and now we recognize it as a a central mediator in uh, inflammatory processes, uh, mediation of pain. Uh, it's in very advanced uh, trials in a number of diseases, particularly rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and, you know, it is uh, not uh, totally clear uh, 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 in, in terms of, a, of, a, of a, a crisp immunologic story, which pathways are being involved. It is obviously produced by uh, hemopoietic cells and viscerosomatic cells that can signal hemopoietic cells and viscerosomatic cells. Uh, so it's, it's very central, kind of like that IL-6, uh, you know, centrality. Um, it, it, recent studies in the Lancet uh, for uh, 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 another molecule, uh, otelumab, uh, recently in RA, you know, a big biomarker study shows that, you know, very little moves uh, outside of uh, 
acute phase reactants and a lot of things that we're looking for. So um, preclinical modeling suggests that it is, inter uh, uh, it is active at the endothelial interface. And, you know, these are pretty impressive data. And, uh, you know, the, it's all going to be about risks and benefits and uh, the safety signal that was uh, released there was uh, you know, quite favorable at this juncture. There's obviously things that we're concerned about from preclinical modeling based on things like uh, pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. And that really has not been seen in any of the global programs thus far. Um, infections will be on the lookout. Leukopenia will be on the lookout, obviously. And then, you know, there's some modeling in bowel and uh, even things like autoimmune thyroid disease that uh, could be uh, looked at. But in this little short trial uh, uh, on the basis of the publication, uh, it's looking pretty good so far. Was before this, it was studied quite a bit in rheumatoid arthritis, wasn't it? Yes. yes. And it, I mean, it's, it, it is um, still advancing in the space and it, it is effective. The question is, you know, that uh, on a lot of people's minds is, is there, is there room for another anti-cytokine in this very, very crowded space? But uh, there are advanced uh, clinical trials going on uh, uh, with a, another molecule, otilumab, uh, which targets the uh, cytokine instead of the receptor, and uh, we'll see. Great. So, uh, David, uh, GCA is definitely not a space where there's uh, a lot of cytokine therapies available. Uh, where do you think this might fit into our treatment armamentarium? Well, I think we're yet to see. Obviously, this is, this is phase two data. Um, you know, this is this is still this is early. We haven't seen this fully reported yet um, at this meeting. It's late breaking abstract. So I think there's a lot to play out with this. I mean, the idea is enticing, and from my simple point of view, really, you know, in the Connie Wayne paradigm of TH1 and TH17, that it might be able to affect both pathways plausibly. That might be impactful you know we've seen unbiased because uh gmcsf uh with a lot of the developmental work was done from melbourne australia so i'm a bit biased on that point of view and i think there are some institutions here which will get some royalties if it comes through so i don't have any stake in them but uh, you know we've seen really nice translational data so uh, maria said actually presented some stuff at July 2019 showing the genetic signature at the temple artery so i think it's you know there's been a nice story to this um, but where is it going to sit? Well, I think, A, we've got to see what happens in the short term, um, in that early phase for in giant cell arteritis when it, if, when it comes through. We won't know that now. Um, obviously, small numbers. We still need to see the full reports on this. But um, secondly, what I'm really interested in is potentially what it looks like over a longer period, longer course of time. Um, really, A, of course, what's the steroid strip bearing potential, but then maybe it has plausibly... Uh, greater effects on some of the, of the, of the actual um, intravascular um, changes that we might see with um, GCA. Now that's highly speculative. And I guess I'm in a position where I can speculate about these things as a, as a neutral observer, but yeah, I think we I think there's potential that it might have, um, it might fill a new space or it may well be in competition with tocilizumab and other IL-6 um, uh, inhibiting uh, monoclonal antibodies. Yes, yeah, so cer certainly. I think that dual targeting of the T helper cell pathways it does uh, it is enticing in terms of a longer term treatment, a more complete disease control, and maybe we could completely get 
GCA into remission um, rather than just dampening it down as we fear might be happening uh, with some of our other treatments. Um, so I, th I think we can all agree it's a really exciting therapy at the moment. It's in very early stages of development, but hopefully um, more uh, evidence will be coming out um, as, as we go through the next year or so on this agent. Um, the second abstract that um, we felt was very interesting from this study was from Peter Villager and his group in Bern. Um, it was the GUSTO study, um, combining an ultra-short steroid course um, with tocilizumab. Um, and David, I might ask you uh, to tell us a little bit about that study. Absolutely. Well, I think that overall in GCA, the paradigm's always been about how much steroid can we get rid of? And that we've lived with a long time with giving people a lot of steroids, seeing people um, gain weight in front of our eyes and, and get all the, um, the complications that we associate with corticosteroid, high dose corticosteroid use. And then tocilizumab changed all of that. And we've seen the quite marked steroid sparing capacity from that. Um, but the question always is, uh, can we go further? I guess in a 26 week wean or 52 week wean of steroid, there's still quite a lot of steroid going on more than we'd consider giving to something, you know, to diseases, patients with diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. So what this is was a um, investigator initiated a small study, open label, label clinical trial from Peter Villinger's group, the, the, the group which um, reported the first uh, clinical data in GCA with, IOC, with tocilizumab. And what they did was they uh, had three days of, of, a, of, of pulse IV methylprednisolone, uh, 500 milligrams, and then no more steroid after that, uh, tocilizumab after that, and then seeing what happened um, beyond that. And, and I remember a few years ago at, at this meeting, there had been some report, there had been a report from Japan where they didn't use any steroid and use tocilizumab. And I think there's a lot of faith at that point because we know that tocilizumab doesn't work as quickly as, as, as corticosteroids. And that's why G-actors had steroid, a steroid wean built in to the tocilizumab um, as well. So just to give the high level, um, the high level outcomes. Uh, well, um, uh, there were 18 patients who um, got through to the complete analysis and of those 14 of those achieved remission but it took them a mean of 11 weeks um, 13 of them uh, were relapse free at, over the 24 weeks but then there were three patients who were non-responders one of whom um, one, one of who only had PMI symptoms but two had cranial symptoms one of whom had um, a new onset AION and had um, permanent visual loss so that seems like a that's a that's a, a pretty big thing there. And also to note that the inflammatory markers took some time to settle, really. I mean, even with tocilizumab, um, not entirely sure exactly when, but somewhere between 10 days and four weeks in the reporting, we know that the, the that took that long for the inflammatory markers to normalize. Is that kind of time period something that's acceptable or not? So yeah, and uh, Len, I might ask you, um, in terms of the immunopathological mechanism or plausibility of a strategy of giving this very short, very high dose steroids in combination of with IL-6 inhibition. Yeah. Is that something that makes logical sense to do? You know, I, I don't want to be hypercritical. I mean, th this is a very important study and these guys are very smart and they, you know, designed it uh, in a, you know, a very acute way. Uh, I would not have I would not have 
designed that study. And I don't really think that I would have equipoise to even put a patient in that study, to be honest with you. And I'll say that for a couple of reasons. And, and this is all hand waving. And if I had a glass of wine, I'd be waving that around too. Um, uh, one, I don't think steroids, uh, post-steroids have ever cured uh, GCA. There's this copious literature on pulse steroids for people presenting with, you know, uh, uh, acute visual loss, where you know these crazy ophthalmologists give them a gram or two grams a day for three or four or five days, etc., and still uh, they have difficulty uh, of getting people off of steroids. So I mean, you have that in the background. Secondly, we have known from practice that in a, the, the greatest risk uh, to permanent visual loss is a history of previous visual loss. Those are our most vulnerable patients. And we know that if we can treat them and get them through the first two to three weeks, visual loss after that is extraordinarily uncommon. So I would have opted for giving them steroids for maybe three weeks. Um, uh, you know, we went from thinking that, uh, you know, six months is short steroids. I mean, we, I, we, we haven't really been doing that either yet. Three days is, uh, I think it's just a bridge too far right now. But I, I, I don't say that in any other way other than Monday morning, looking back at this right now, but I wouldn't have done it that way. So uh, Sarah, um, um, what, what do you think about where we're going with steroids and joint cell arthritis? Um, where we might end up. This makes me wonder about um, whether maybe we'll always need a little bit of steroid together with biologic therapies. So there was one patient in the treatment arm of GIACTA who had acute ischemic optic neuropathy who recovered with increase of steroid, but they did have AION and they had um, and they were on the biologic arm. There was the patient in Seresta who um, which had a three-month taper who had visual loss. And again, that was in the treatment arm. And it's just, just very short steroid tapers. And you, you, you wonder whether the um, systemic effects of the cytokine inhibition are blunting some of those early warning signals of GCA relapse. And so, or maybe the trials have just been unlucky. Maybe we always have some visual loss in our cohorts and we just don't, we just choose to ignore it. Um, so I, I don't know, it's just individual cases and you, you can't make, huge decisions for the world about a guideline decisions based on like n equals one per trial um, but it does make me wonder whether um whether a little bit of a tiny dose of steroids maybe might protect protect some some of our patients maybe our oldest patients the ones that have got highest risk of visual loss i don't know there's no one i i, I don't think we can say from the evidence but um but I, I i get a little bit nervous with patients who have a you know those highest risk patients that len was referring to the the oldest ones the ones who have previously had transient visual loss just worry a little bit about them take, taking them completely off steroids um if they're also on a cytokine inhibitor as well no, you're not saying we're turning oh, sorry oh no, no you're not saying we're turning a blind eye to our fallibility in this disease are you <laughs> i think there's a lot of wishful thinking in giants a lot of writers isn't there um, and see what we want to see. So, yeah. <laughs> so I think that is a, a, probably a nice note to end this conversation on. Um, Very nice. Um, 
And um, I would like to thank everyone for, for watching um, and remember to go to room now uh, for more um, updates from ACR 2020. Thanks. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. Welcome to the Saturday night mid-meeting recap. Artie Calvin on I. Artie, hey, how you doing? Welcome. We're going to um, have the pleasure of a number of our esteemed faculty who've been reporting on the meeting join us for short segments. This is like our version of the Tonight Show. Um, we don't have any entry music for uh, Michael and Bella, but welcome to um, our evening recap, Michael and Bella. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, Michael and Bella are covering gout. They're both from New York City. Um, I'm sure that they've been very busy. busy. Let's just start with a simple question about um, the meeting. Um, Bella, what's, what's your impression of the meeting so far? What's, um, what's impressed you the most? I think, I mean, this is my first virtual meeting as it is for a lot of us. And I think the best thing about it is I can go to multiple sessions uh, without running around uh, between uh, like long walks. So I can, I think I'm learning much more than usual. All right, so I forgot to live stream and, uh, and now we're, uh, we're also live streaming to our um, YouTube channel and to our, um, our website. So sorry for that, uh, that difficulty. Sorry to my, um, my friend, John Swope, who's uh, managing things. Um, Michael, what's your impression so far? Well, I'm having a great time. You know, um, it, it, Bella's absolutely right that there are many good things about this. Um, some not so good things, of course. But honestly, uh, Jack, we've been so isolated for so long. Even to be virtually with colleagues it, is just great. And I was so excited uh, to see some of the awards uh, this week. To see, uh, especially to see, um, you know, the uh, the the um, Jim O'Dell Award. Uh, I just think it's the people who got awards. It's just so well deserved, and it's so nice to celebrate with everybody. Well, Michael, you mentioned some limitations. What would you, what would he? Uh, you know, what, what is it that you miss about actually being there in, in person? Well, you, you know, Artie, I'm, I'm a program director and I've been a program director for a long time. And um, I'm, I'm a little bit like, um, this is not politics, but I'm a little bit like Joe Biden, a little bit of a huggy guy. And I really miss seeing my fellows who are spread far and wide and giving them a big hug. I, I'll tell you, there's just nothing like that. You know, there, there have been challenges. Uh, you know, the ACR has done a tremendous job putting all this together, but it's been hard watching all those sessions, the Fauci sessions that I think blew up the, the internet. Um, and it was really, really difficult to get everybody on, but I think people are finding a way around it by um, clicking on the Zoom link and whatnot. Um, We're a great community, you know, yeah. and, you know, we pulled together. We're very lucky as rheumatologists. So Bella, we're about midway through the meeting. Uh, one limitation of this virtual platform is that uh, while you can ask, while questions can be asked, there's nothing like standing at someone's poster and you get to really talk to them. Um, what would you say, what, what, what do you say, gosh, I wish there was a poster because I would have asked this person about this. Uh, I know there's like probably many questions you have about some of the posters presented so far. True. So, you know, just walking through the poster room, uh, meeting people also this talking about not the one poster that they're talking about, but 
see what their vision is, what their future directions is. That's something that you cannot type in a text box. Yes, at least ACR has done it so that we can get each and every uh, questions that we want typed down and people answer back. Um, so it's it's something, but it's not, it still doesn't give you the full picture of a lot of abstracts or a lot of thoughts and visions, which are very important, I think, uh, to get future directions in rheumatology. You know, uh, I know that both of you have been glued to the computer for the last uh, two days, uh, <laughs> and we wanted you to come on and, and talk about gout with us. What's, uh, what's, what's taking you so far as far as um, some of the gout content? Let's start with um, our faculty lead, uh, Michael Pillinger. Sure, uh, it, it's actually been quite, quite a good uh, meeting so far. Um, I, I noted a few themes. One of the themes is that um, there, there's definitely been uh, an explosion uh, in studies of genetics and genomics. Um, being uh, not a geneticist, it's, I find it a little thick to get through, but uh, it's yielding a lot of interesting information. Um, the uh, the other thing I uh, the other thing I noted is um, maybe some good news about some of our drugs and cardiovascular disease. Uh, I'm hearing a lot of talk about colchicine, which is something I've been studying for a long time. And um, coming on the heels of the two um, big New England Journal studies, people are starting to talk about whether that is going to be something we've got to look at in our patients with disease. And, um, and then the last thing I noticed that I, I think there's a, there are a lot of studies about trying to make peglotticase work better and um, uh, by approaches with immunomodulation. And uh, I think that's really exciting too, because people, you know, it, nothing works better than peglotticase for patients who need it when it works and uh, expanding the pool and not having people have um, immune infusion reactions or have to stop the drug to avoid those, I think it's going to be very important if, if they crack this nut. Before we uh, circle back with that, I want to get Bella's um, take on what impacted her the most or what stood out for you the most on the abstracts you've seen thus far. I think, a lot presented uh, today, right? On Saturday? Yes, there's a lot of uh, abstracts today. Um, the peglotikase ones were definitely something intriguing. Uh, because before 2018, uh, actually there was a lot of talk about this, that before 2018, nobody was using immunomodulation with peglotikase. Uh, but after that report, and I think, I think November 2018, this there's some studies which show spike of using immunomodulation. Um, now it's up to 20% of patients have some kind of immunomodulation with peglotikase. So those were definitely striking. Um, also multimorbidity or comorbidity with gout. There's a lot of uh, abstracts. Uh, I mean, the cardiovascular stuff was known, uh, but some of the other stuff uh, like, uh, you know, mortality, um, specifically cost specific, like um, gout specific mortality, um, as well as amputations, uh, you know, a lot of uh, sort of epi, uh, epi sort of studies uh, highlighting uh, multimorbidity. I think those were pretty striking too. So, Mike, I know you go through all the abstracts, I think, as we all do. I, I, as I went through them, I didn't know if I saw much on pseudogout at, at this meeting. Is there much? Is there anything? There, there, there is a bit. Um, 
and there there are a couple of talks coming up over the the okay. next few days. Um, I, but you're absolutely right uh, that it's been thin, and I don't know if that's um, a selection issue or uh, if the meetings it seems to be a little bit abbreviated. We have fewer sessions. There was a nice abstract about um, uh, about uh, bringing gout and pseudogout together about pyrophosphate in TOFI, which is something oh. that we all knew because you take X-rays of you know, TOFI and you see calcium, but it, it, you know, I don't think it's ever been formally studied before. So I, I was sort of happy to, to yeah. see that one. Okay. Bella, you, you, I know you, you, you were midway. I know you looked through the abstracts as well. Uh, what do you got coming up? We have, we have still a couple of days. Where do, what, what are you going to prioritize for, for things to see for people who say, I, you know, they're not gout mavens, but they want to see the important stuff. What's the, what's the key stuff coming up in the next couple of days? Uh, I think a lot of the, uh, some of the studies on, um, again, immunomodulation with peglotokase. I think uh, there's one or two sessions on Monday uh, that we're looking for, uh, forward to. Um, and, and a lot of genetic stuff, again, it's, um, Again, for clinicians, I don't know how relevant it is because you're not going to be able to send these sort of genetic markers, uh, but definitely interesting for research purposes and maybe going forward uh, to phenotype those patients. So, okay, can we uh, just go back to the immune um, the immunogenicity issue? It, it actually started for me with Michael's paper about azathioprine use in uh, peg peglotocase. Oh, somebody read that paper. Yeah. Yeah, and and I waved it around for a few weeks, and people told me stop it. Um, but you know, I, I did that in in my patients as well, and it worked very very well. Um, Michael, how do you see the evolution of this concept? That it's gone from azathioprine, then a, a number of case reports or case series with methotrexate, and now we have a controlled trial, um, the recipe trial, looking at mycophenolate. Yeah. So, well, first of all, um, a shout out, uh, if I might, to John Botson, because um, he, he sort of uh, single-handedly uh, pushed methotrexate early. Uh, when, when we started with azathioprine, we were a little nervous about methotrexate. And actually, uh, Pooja Khanna presented the recipe study today and, and made the same comment, because we figured a lot of our gout patients probably, uh, you know, uh, drink alcohol. So, we were trying to avoid it, but uh, it's a logical drug. It's a drug we know how to use, and uh, and ditto Celsept, you know, ditto mycophenolate. So uh, I think um, the more the better. Basically, it it looks like there's um, there's also an abstract uh, about um, the the mirror study, uh, which is the methotrexate study, and uh, and a, another abstract actually about azathioprine. So it's it's kind of a full house, and the you know, right now, I think we're waiting for the, the you know, the, the, the full information to come in, but um, it's looking like this is an approach we can use. These are drugs we know, and being able to pick and choose among them is probably the way to go because we want to, you know, consider our patients individually. So I think we're getting somewhere. True. And, and, and again, the study that I highlighted, 20% of us are already doing this. So this is a claims data with peglotokase and 20% um, of patients are on some sort of immunomodulation. Uh, so there's, people are already doing it, but I, I don't know. I always worry about 
uh, azathioprine <laughs> given in gout patients because while switching or doing something, if they start taking the allopurinol or azathioprine together, um, that does get into problems. So I always worry, even though we never started together, but you know, for whatever reason, when stepping up or stepping down, that that's a potential issue that can happen clinically. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Bella. Uh, one has to be uh, pretty careful, of course. I mean, it's it, it, it's with Cristexa, so you shouldn't be giving allopurinol anyway, but it, but it is a concern. And uh, Jack, when I submitted that paper, one of the reviewers kicked back and told me about a little known uh, paper from the 1970s that allopurinol has, actually has urate lowering properties, but not enough to account for benefit. But they said, how do you know the benefit of allopurinol isn't because it lowers urate? Probably not. So let's go to two, uh, uh, we'll get a few minutes that uh, this issue of cardiovascular um, effects with Fabuxostat, that trial is coming up. That's going to be presented, I think, coming up. That's called the, was it probe study? FAST trial. Yeah. Fast. So um, what's seen there, and it's going to change our thinking about Fabuxostat, which seems to have a pendulum about cardiovascular risks. It, it does, it doesn't, it does, it doesn't. And now this study says it doesn't. Michael, what's your take on this? Uh, I could write a book on this. So uh, let me start uh, by saying that the, the FDA did what they had to do. There was a signal in the original uh, phase three studies. It wasn't significant, and they asked for a phase four study, and that's what the CARE study is. And that had a signal and a secondary outcome that is a serious outcome. And so they had to black box this thing. But the CARES trial, however well-intentioned it was, um, had enormous problems. Uh, Bob Turkeltaub was talking about this today. Um, half the patients didn't finish the trial. Most of the MIs were after people were off the drug and there was no control. So even if, they, if it showed what it showed, it didn't show that Fabuzostat raised risk. It just showed that it wasn't as low a risk as allopurinol. So we have a few studies that run against it. There's a large study out of choice group that's retrospective with 100,000 Medicare patients that showed none of this effect. There was a, a contested study from Europe called the FREED trial that showed none of it. And now this study from Europe called the FAST trial, which looks like it's going to show none of it too. So how we're going to, you know, how the FDA responds and how we respond is probably different. I, I think actually the most important thing out of the CARES trial was uh, that patients who didn't take aspirin were the ones who got into trouble. If you had cardiac risk and you took aspirin, they, you didn't have this problem. So you should probably take your aspirin. Very good. All right, folks, want to thank you for joining us. We're going to ask Bella and Michael to sign off and we're going to bring in our next two guests on The Tonight Show. Welcome, we're going to talk psoriatic arthritis in our mid-meeting recap. Joining us is Eric Ritterman from Illinois and Robert Chow from Virginia. Welcome gentlemen, Robert, you're on mute. You wanna unmute yourself, that's gonna be good. All right. That's a good idea. <laughs> it's always the best way to begin. All right, um, let's quickly ask you, tell me one thing you like, one thing you hate from the, the meeting so far, this virtual meeting. Make them quick answers. Robert. Uh, one thing I like is I can uh, neither confirm or deny that I'm wearing my pajamas still. 
put on my pants. And the one thing I hate is I don't get to see uh, my colleagues in person. All right, Eric. Yeah, I like the fact that the ACR was nice enough to <clears throat> bring this meeting to my basement for me so I could watch. Um, I actually think that the setup has worked really well. I was very, I've been very impressed with the, the uh, <clears throat> structure of the of the the program and how they put it all together and how you can access everything. That's been pretty easy. I miss seeing people. That's the hard part. I've missed seeing people for seven months now, and that's the hard part. <clears throat> Get a dog. All we can say. I got to, and they bark in the middle of the meeting. <laughs> a lot, a ton of PSA abstracts. I mean, compared to years past, uh, we're midway through the meeting. Uh, Rob, what's uh, stuff that you've seen so far that you thought was great at uh, psoriatic arthritis specific wise? Right, right. Yeah, so definitely a lot of abstracts on you know new therapies and, and continuation extended study, fifty-two uh, week extension studies on drugs like, you know, uh, secukinumab as far as sustained improvements in um, psoriatic arthritis with axial manifestations, uh, guselcomab, a 52-week study, again, sustained response in all major disease domains, improvement in enthesitis and dactylitis, you have rifilgotinib, um, uh, you know, post-hoc analysis with improvement in dactylitis, and also the 52-week uh, extension uh, with improvement on uh, enthesitis. So definitely uh, a lot of uh, new therapies and probably even more coming up. All right, Eric, what is, so what, what, what's happened so far? Two days in, what's the, uh, the top thing that someone who hasn't been paying so close attention to psoriatic arthritis should go back and look at? Well, I think, I think the two top things, I mean, you know, uh, in contrast to some of the other meetings the last few years, there hasn't been a ton, a ton of sort of new molecules, new stuff. The one exception here are, are the two um, hepatocytinib um, presentations. And, and we, those data were presented at ULARB. This is the first time they're showing up at ACR. They're both uh, oral abstract presentations and um, really good trials on hepatocytinib in, you know, DMARD failures and then hepatocytinib in biologic DMARD failures. And they set the stage for a kind of a shift in, in our management of psoriatic arthritis more towards JAK inhibitors in the future. Have either of you seen anything so far that you're going to take home and change your practice over? Incorporate yeah. right away? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely will. I, you know, I posted a, a video about this actually about, you know, just adding more um, tools to our arsenal. That's what I like to say about especially tailoring treatment to, let's say, an enthesitis predominant patient or dactylitis predominant or skin predominant. Um, but I think, you know, one of the big themes this year is definitely enthesitis. You know, we had, a, there was a great lecture by Dr. McGonigal on enthesitis recently. Um, a lot of studies, we just mentioned a few on enthesitis, focusing on enthesitis. There's actually one pretty interesting study that they broke down treatment groups into no treatment slash NSAIDs, you know, conventional DMARDs and biologic DMARDs. And they actually found that 80, about, I think more than 80% of patients had resolution of enthesitis despite the treatment group which was you know, rather interesting because that sort of throws the question, do you even need to treat enthesitis or tailor treatment for enthesitis? Eric, what about you? You know, I haven't seen anything I'm gonna take home yet, but you know, it, what Robert brought up is sort of interesting. One of the, the sort of new studies here is this Achilles study on, on Achilles tendonitis with secukin, treating Achilles tendonitis with secukinumab. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a mix of psoriatic and, and spa patients who had primarily Achilles tendonitis, 
Um, and they didn't achieve the kind of resolution that they had hoped for. So they missed their primary endpoint. A lot of other outcomes were better. And, and I think that the abstract, you know, Robert alluded to is sort of interesting because, you know, these people sort of come and go. Um, one of the more challenging pieces of that abstract was that they, you got into the study by having Achilles tendonitis clinically and on MRI. And yet when the MRIs were read centrally, a little over half of the patients actually had Achilles tendonitis when read by a radiologist centrally. So it, it brings into the question sort of what is enthesitis? Is, is it clinical? Is it imaging? And how do you sort of sort between that? And, you know, how do you, I mean, this is the thing we've struggled with for a while, sorry, enthesitis is like, how, what do you, how much do you need to treat in those patients? So Eric, one of the things, it's not solved at this meeting, but there, there's a lot of data that addresses that. Um, and be, just between us and the wall and the 135 people online, um, <laughs> is axial disease in PSA the same or different than axial spa? I don't think we know yet. I mean, I think we keep asking that question. The problem is that there isn't, it, it, there's only one study that really looked at it, and that's this maximized trial, which there's some data here with the MRIs. And that, that's a, it's a study of, of secukinumab in psoriatic arthritis patients with axial disease. Everything else we've seen is kind of a sub-analysis of a PSA trial. And, and again, they, they said, well, you have axial disease because the investigator at the site said you had axial disease. And, and yet when they read those images centrally, a lot of them didn't have the changes they said they had. So we don't know what it really means. One of the extracts that I, I saw that, that this week that is kind of interesting it was an abstract that um, came out of uh, the, I think it was the Soriatic Research Consortium, where they looked at a, a group of patients, some with just basic psoriatic arthritis without axial involvement, some with axial involvement, and they looked at BASDI scores and whether it could distinguish between the two, because we think of BASDI as an axial score, and it was the same in both groups, and the response to therapy was the same in both groups, <clears throat> even including question two, which asks you about back pain. So it, it's, it's a challenge to say, you know, I mean, one, we don't know who has axial disease. And then it, how do we decide if the axial part is better or not? It, it's, it's a choice and it's gonna be, and, and it is a relevant question as we move into the Aravile 23 inhibitors, which don't seem to work for the axial disease, at least in, in AXPA. In AXPA. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so they looked at that in the Gazelcomab trials and it worked, but it worked by virtue of improvement in composite outcomes that may just reflect general improvement. We just don't know. And with the jacobibs coming, that raises the stakes also. Uh, given exactly, the, totally, that we're seeing. totally. Rob, what, any, uh, what, are you, what are you thinking? What are your thoughts on that? Does, is, axial is axial involvement in PSA the same as ankylosing spondylitis or axial spa, or is it different? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a hard question to, to answer as well. Um, you know, going back to that maximized study, though, uh, one interesting thing they did find was a reduction in MRI lesions, which, you know, um, you know take it for uh, as you will. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, especially Caselcomab coming up, um, interesting to see what the uh, Jackinum data will show too. But, uh, you know, it's a hard answer at this point. Let me put in my two cents on this in that I, I think it's um, a good thing it's being addressed. I don't think it's an important question, really, because I'm just looking for a reason to take over management of a psoriatic patient. If it's for their axial symptoms, I'm in. If it's for you know their their 
peripheral arthritis, whether it's poly or oligoarticular, I'm the guy. You know, it's like I get bothered when I get sent the skin only people and like, why are you here when you should be down the road at Alan Mentor's office, the, you know, the, their dermatologist. So um, Artie brought, made an allu alluded to the jacks are coming on and they're kind of confusing, you know, or expanding our pretty expanded market in PSA therapy. It's going to get more crowded when we start using tick inhibition, tick two inhibitors. Yeah. Eric, what do you think? Maybe. Maybe. So <clears throat> one of the late breaking abstracts this time is, uh, let me do, try see if I can do it right. Do, do, do cravacitinib. Um, Artie, how do you do it? Uh, I, I, th I think it's a very clever name is, I think it's, do you crave a sitinib? Oh, there you go. Do you crave <laughs> a sitinib? So um, it, you know, and that's, that's the first tick two inhibitor we've seen. It's a phase two trial of psoriatic arthritis. It worked, but it didn't look like it was much different than anything else. And, and you know, it's, it's sort of billed as, well, IL-23 signals through the tick, you know, through tick molecules. And so that's kind of the pathway. Skin response wasn't that fabulous. It certainly didn't look like the kind of skin response we see with some IL-23 inhibitors. The joint response was good, but, you know, it wasn't better than we've had. So I don't know that that's going to shake things up. We'll see. It's coming tomorrow. Um, yeah. Rob, we'll go back to go to you and then maybe go to Eric for a quick for the finale stuff that's coming up. I know you 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 have your your schedule planned, uh, what you're going to go see tomorrow and, and what you're going to go see uh, the rest of the meeting. Well, give, give us the, the somebody who said, hey, I want to see what's best in, in PSA. What should they see in the next couple of days? Yeah, got it. I, I think uh, an overarching theme for for all diseases in, so, in this meeting just like the last meeting is, is machine learning and you have your gut microbiome. Um, just like an RA, uh, same goes with PSA. There's gonna be a lot of, uh, there's an interesting uh, abstract in gut dysbiosis um, with radiographic and in thesis involvement. Again, tying in that enthesitis theme, a lot of uh, data, um, even recent or even uh, the past two days uh, on machine learning. Um, and there continues to be more uh, machine, machine learning um, there is going to be a phase 2B study in tilgacizumab, um, IL-23 inhibitor. And I believe there's also a late-breaking abstract on, uh, on TOPA with uh, psoriatic arthritis. Um, and just to tie up with enthesitis again, and, you know, having a better way of uh, evaluating enthesitis besides just poking at the Achilles and saying, does it hurt? Uh, <laughs> yes or no. Is uh, you know, there's a, a, a <laughs> come on, yeah, right. But I can't, I, I can't poke the other 200 in thesis points though. <laughs> but you know, there's going to be a, a, a ultrasound study on enthesitis coming up uh, in the next few days, which would be interesting. Ultrasound Eric, scoring study, Eric. What about you? What, uh, what somebody interested in PSA who hasn't gone through the booklet yet? What the uh, booklet, listen to me, in 1980. <laughs> Um, who hasn't gone through the, the program listing online, yeah, uh, what should I, they I mean, go see? I, I mean, I, I would, I, I, you know, to, to quote you, I, I do crave a sitnip because I, I do think that's interesting because it's a new molecule and it's a new, you know, it is a new pathway and it opens up something new. Um, it's an interesting molecule because everything we've seen with JAK inhibitors, there's all these sort of heterodimers and, and there's sort of the, the inhibition may cross pathways. And this seems to be fairly specific, whether that results in anything clinical, we'll see, but that, I think that's going to be an interesting abstract. Um, you know, I, I, there, there, besides that, I'm not sure what else is like 
earth shattering, just a lot of interesting stuff that sort of fills in the holes, fills in the holes on sort of extension studies with some of the drugs we've had, fills in some long-term safety data and some of the drugs we've had, um, sort of some additional sub-analysis of the trials we had to sort of understand in different populations. You know, as I started with, I, I don't think there's a lot that's earth shatteringly new in terms of new therapies, but there's just a lot that sort of fills in the blanks with the therapies that we've had so far. Let me ask uh, both of you or either of you um, uh, research at this meeting about or clearing up the issue of what drug is better to use after you failed a TNF inhibitor or more than one TNF inhibitor? Is that an important issue um, about your next choice of therapy? It, it is. I haven't seen much that really helps me there at, at this meeting, Jack. And maybe you pick something up I missed, but I haven't seen much. I mean, there's, you know, we, we, we desperately sort of need head-to-head -head studies and we don't have those. We've got two head-to-head -head studies that are TNF versus IL-17. As we move into the JAK space, we need, we're going to need to sort of get some direct studies that say, you know, should you use an IL-17? I mean, that's the thing in psoriatic arthritis. We've got all these pathways. We can use an IL-17 inhibitor. We've got IL-23 inhibitors, one approved, more coming. We've got JAK inhibitors that are coming very, very soon. Uh, but then we don't know which of those to use and we're going to need some good comparative data. And I, and I think just taking two trials and sort of holding them up against each other doesn't give you the answer you need. You know, yeah. uh, in dermatology, they've got a lot of head to head yeah. trials yeah. and it seems like it's changed the treatment landscape. Yeah. Do you think the same will happen in, in rheumatology? I hope so, but I don't know. I mean, that's just, for some reason, they've sort of gone down that path and that's just been sort of the way they've looked at their drugs. I, I just haven't seen much of that yet. We've got a couple, I, I mean, what, what we're gonna need is, uh, truly we're gonna need is a head-to-head -head that includes a jack and a, and a biologic. That's really right. the, the next place we need to go. And I, I don't see anything coming in the near future. All right, gentlemen, I want to say goodbye. Eric and Robert, thanks for joining um, thanks. the panel discussion on psoriatic arthritis. <laughs>
Uh, so um, that, you know, over eight grams, uh, I'm sorry, 80 grams over time, but, um, you know, small doses usually um, zero to one to four milligrams for these patients. Um, and so a lot of physicians would think that these small prednisone uh, prescriptions will not have a significant outcome in the things that we worry about with prednisone when we think about fractures, infections, cardiovascular outcomes. The duration of treatment though, you know, this was a 10-year follow-up study and the mean duration of treatment on glucocorticoids was 44.6 months. Um, and over time, when they followed the patients, they found that there were a fair number of events for them to um, analyze. So there were 95 total events. So they use a cumulative endpoint looking at deaths, um, cardiovascular disease, fractures, and severe infections. So there were 10 deaths in the study, uh, 18 cardiovascular and, and um, 32 fractures, 35 severe infections. Um, when they take a look at the univariate analysis of 10 years, you find that the glucocorticoid um, group was significantly higher um, of having more events. So 71 uh, of the total 95 events were in that glucocorticoid group. That was strongly statistically significant. We also find that there's a, a pretty strong dose effect. So the more steroids, the longer you've been on it, uh, the higher the risk. Um, the, the, the risk associated with being on steroids, again, we're not talking about 5, 10, 20 milligrams. We're talking about 1 to 4 milligrams. It increased every year with the time you're on it. So once you pass that six-year threshold, um, you see it as an increased risk factor. And by 10 years, you have a hazards ratio of, of um, uh, 6.8 uh, being on steroids. So the takeaway from here is that these small prednisone doses, you have trouble weaning off patients below five milligrams. Um, a lot of physicians will think this isn't gonna be something that will impact you. They call it the physiological dosing. It, according to this cohort, you find that um, in all of these patients, um, the risk of death, cardiovascular um, fractures and infection, and, and particularly um, on that, that dose effect, it was the infections in the cardiovascular that had the biggest impact there. Um, so um, I think that plays into, when I think about the new ACR guidelines, recommend, recommendation not to put patients on steroids up front because we know patients will have difficulty coming off of them. Um, so um, trying to start with a steroid sparing agent, certainly if they, if they need steroids for acute inflammation, you should treat that, but the goal is not to continue steroid therapy uh, longitudinally. This is Eric Dine with Room Now. Thank you very much for following Room Now throughout this conference and stay tuned to Room Now uh, for breaking rheumatology information after the, the conference and, and our future meetings. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Jeff Curtis at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and I wanted to bring to you a pair of abstracts from the recent ACR Convergence meeting. 
Although probably the virus that's on most of our minds these days is the SARS-CoV-2 virus, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that we've been talking for a long time about a different virus, herpes zoster, and thinking about how we might best mitigate risks for, sh for shingles or reactivation of herpes zoster that for most people, at least in the Western Hemisphere, lies latent in the dorsal root ganglion and is just waiting to reactivate based upon immunosenescence or, or other factors, including immunosuppressive medications, glucocorticoids, Janus kinase inhibitors, et cetera. So the pair of abstracts that I want to cover addresses the dual questions that are really of most importance. One is, is does the vaccine work? And in particular, does the vaccine work in people who are treated with Janus kinase or JAK inhibitors? So a very interesting abstract being presented on Monday at the Convergence meeting, 1997, focuses on individuals who are on JAK inhibitors, the majority of which happen to be on baricitinib, but there's a bit of a mix, who are then getting vaccinated with the adjuvanted uh, subunit virus, Shingrix, and compares them to healthy controls who don't have autoimmune diseases. Their outcome was immunogenicity. So this is a lab-based outcome because you're, you're gonna have a tough time powering for clinical event rate reduction, meaning because the vaccine actually worked to prevent shingles reactivation. Like most vaccine studies, this one, which is coming to us out of Sweden, is focused on a lab-based outcome immunogenicity. Now, do you have an increase in antibody titers or do you have the expected changes in cell-mediated immunity? So this abstract compares 40 patients on JAK inhibitors to 20 healthy controls. The outcome was antibody testing by ELISA, so not cell-mediated immunity, or at least they didn't present those results at this point in time. The cell-mediated immunity results are arguably more important, although occasionally more difficult to interpret, but probably have more clinical relevance. That said, and recognizing it is a bit of a limitation, um, and comparing the two groups, 75% of individuals on a JAK inhibitor had a reasonable response to changes in antibodies. So their definition of what is a immunogenic response, meaning the vaccine works, was pretty liberal. You didn't have to have antibody titers go up much, only more than 1.2 fold. In the control group of 20 patients, it was 100% that looked like the vaccine worked. But in the RA group on the JAK inhibitors, it was only 75%. Remember that in the ZOE 50 and 70 trials, it was 90 to 95% effective in older individuals uh, that were not on any immunosuppressive drugs or didn't have autoimmune conditions. So if it was only 75% effective, this clearly is a ways from that. And remember, we haven't even seen the cell-mediated immunity results. The other abstract that I wanna to speak to is a safety abstract from Cleveland Clinic, where they're asking the second question, the, the aspects of, you know, is this going to cause our patients to flare? And the issue here that is somewhat times hard to sort out is, is it a disease flare or is it the expected reactogenicity? Reactogenicity just meaning, you know, the vaccine revs your immune system up, you kind of feel bad. You might have a local reaction like a sore arm, but you might have systemic symptoms and that could be pretty severe. In the healthy older people, it's 12 to 17%. So this series of 359 autoimmune patients seen at the Cleveland Clinic were evaluated in a retrospective fashion looking for a chart review and evidence of treatment changes or disease flare management in the 12 weeks after vaccination with Shingrix. 
they showed that overall 16% of people had a flare and it was higher in some diseases like 24%. A pretty high proportion had to have something done. They either had to add glucocorticoids, almost half, or they need to even change their un underlying immunosuppression. Now, this is retrospective. This is as much as you're going to glean from chart ascertainment and not what you would get necessarily if you're asking prospectively, where in the first week or so after someone gets the vaccine dose, you're going to have much more reactogenicity based on trial data. So you could argue that this is a reasonable way, certainly a conservative approach, but you know, 16%, maybe as high as 24% in RA that have disease worsening or flare is probably a high enough proportion that this needs to be on your radar screen so that you don't get you know, calls and people saying, what do I do? Because um, you know, they're unhappy, they're doing badly, you've got to clear your schedule. So bottom line, it looks like that the Shingrix vaccine works in RA, but perhaps if you're on a JAK inhibitor especially, it may not work all that well. I think that invites strategies that we might think about. For example, if you're on a JAK inhibitor, maybe we should hold, be holding the dose for two weeks, for example. That needs to be tested. In terms of safety and reactogenicity, this is not a benign vaccine. We're going to get calls. There's going to be flares. There's going to be disease worsening. And in a substantial proportion of people, it looks like we may need to react to it. Uh, that said, the vaccine looks like it is reasonably well tolerated, but definitely needs to be the source of communication in advance for what to do if there's a, a flare or a potential flare, you know, that might not be the same thing as reactogenicity, which typically lasts a week or less if it's systemic. So I think that this is helpful accruing evidence that this vaccine is reasonably effective and for the most part well tolerated, but there are some issues. More data to come, obviously.